already been mentioned, uh, today is a very special day in the life of our church as we're celebrating the installation of Chris Merkel, our new elder. And so we're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians and be turning our attention to Paul's uh, message to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And obviously this passage has immediate application for Chris and by implication the other elders of this church. But since all of us here are called to gospel ministry, it has application to everyone here as well. And I pray that all of us would find both challenge as well as encouragement in Paul's words to Timothy. You can open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verse, verses 1 through 2, or 1 through 7, excuse me. And as you're turning there, let me, let me pray. Lord, it is our greatest desire that you would be everything to us. It's also our greatest grief that you often aren't. We do feel our affections uh, drifting and our hopes being placed in the things of this world that are transient and often merely just lies. Lord, we would be satisfied in you. Even as you instructed Timothy through Paul, to be strong in grace. I pray that you would strengthen us in your grace even this afternoon. And that we might all see how we should individually respond to these words and also um, understand what it means to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Charles Bridges wrote this about ministry in his book, The Christian Ministry. He was a Puritan pastor. And this is what he's had to say about ministry. Too often has a neglect of serious and prayerful, prayerful calculation given awful power to the temptation to draw back from so momentous a work. Indeed, no previous contemplation can give just apprehensions to its difficulties. Any more than a spectator of the field of battle can realize the intense anxiety of the actual conflict. Whatever general notions of a serious and intelligent character may be attained, much will yet be left that experience alone can supply. Much that will enforce the exhortation once given by a veteran 
to a young soldier. You, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the difficulties of this work to the considerate, conscientious mind must exclude any expectation of temporal ease and comfort. Many tracts of life offer a large promise of indulgence, but to this work is most especially linked the daily cross. So when Charles Bridges thought over what words a person entering the ministry should think over, his mind was brought to this particular section of Scripture as he read. And this passage is part of Timothy's last words to his friend and co-laborer, Timothy. He knew that in a short time he was going to leave the world. And he wanted Timothy to grasp the weight of responsibility that would now be upon Timothy's shoulders. Although the two of them had already experienced great fruitfulness together in their various ministries in various cities, the glory days of ministry were beginning to fade. Paul was imprisoned and would soon die. And Timothy was being tempted to waver. Already many of their other friends had given up the work. Paul mentions that Phygelus and Hermogenes had recently abandoned him, along with others in Asia, in chapter 1, verse 15. And then in chapter 4, verse 10, he mentions Demas and others have already left him. He says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. So on top of being discouraged by seeing some of his fellow laborers depart and go to other places, Timothy's also facing significant opposition in his own church. In chapter 2, verses 17 to 19, he's, he speaks of Hymenaeus and Philetus who have begun to spread false teachings in his own church based on unfounded assumptions. It says that they are upsetting the faith of some. It's also evident in the letter that Timothy was battling significant internal discouragement. Multiple times Paul feels compelled to charge Timothy to endure, to keep Going to stand firm and continue preaching the word, particularly in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And so Paul exhorts him in various ways throughout the letter to not stop trusting in Christ and to continue to keep his confidence in the word of God and in the power of the gospel. And so, in short, the message of this letter, 2 Timothy. Paul is saying, Timothy, remain faithful to your commission. And in the section we'll look at today, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Paul gives Timothy three commands that clarify to us what it means to be faithful in the ministry. Be strong in grace. Entrust the Bible's teaching to other faithful men. And thirdly, to suffer hardship. And he illustrates suffering hardship with a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. 
And again, these have immediate application to any elder or pastor, but really they have application to all of us because we're all called to follow Christ. And we're all called to serve the church. So let's begin looking at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy here refers to, sorry, Paul refers to Timothy here as his child in the faith. Because he was, as a young man, trained for ministry by Paul. But it's likewise Paul's message, not just to Timothy, but Paul's message to us. So this isn't just the elder's exhortation to Chris. This is really God's exhortation to Chris, and really, again, by implication for all of us. And the first thing he calls us to is to be strengthened by grace. And so when he commands Timothy to be strengthened by grace, what he's doing is, is, is Paul is saying, Timothy, find your strength in Christ. Don't lose heart. Don't be dismayed by your discouragements. Don't give in to fear. You need to stay strong. And the source of that strength, you'll notice, is not just in Timothy's own resolve. The strength is to be found in Jesus Christ. It's the grace of Christ. Now, initially, grace does not sound very strong. So why does he call him to be strong in grace? The word tends to convey tenderness or gentleness kindness. At first glance, it hardly seems motivating at all. But if you think about it, grace is the most powerful force in the universe because no other power in the universe is able to take a hard-hearted unbeliever and make them a lover of Jesus Christ. Or to take children of darkness and turn them into children of light. Turning slaves of Satan into slaves of Christ. Only grace can do that. Just a couple days ago, in the hospitals, I was meeting with the Kenoshitas after Elijah had been severely burned. Pamela gave testimony to the grace of God in her life. And she remarked how she felt peace and strength in the midst of an agonizing situation. And there was, in her own words, no explanation for it. Just God's grace to endure in the midst of that pain. Grace is the most powerful force in the universe. And so we should not think of grace as like a soft breeze coming off the ocean but rather think of it as a hurricane. We shouldn't think of it as a stream that's coming down out of a mountain, gently trickling, but rather more like Niagara Falls. Grace is the most powerful force in the universe, and it alone will strengthen you in the most difficult times in your life. When you have nothing to hold on and nobody left to lean on. 
And Paul knows that God's grace is the only thing that will make Timothy's ministry effective and that it will be the only thing that will sustain him in the midst of that pain. And so the implication is, be strong in grace rather than anything else. Find your strength, Timothy, in grace. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on any of your other strengths. Don't lean on your past experiences or your own successes that you previously had. Find your strength in grace. The only thing that will sustain you and make your ministry truly effective is to be strong in grace. Chris, there will be times when you're scared. There will be times when you're confused, stuck, bewildered. There will be times when you will feel lonely and hurt and angry. And it's especially at these times that you feel like you don't have strength to continue to endure. That you recognize that even though you don't have strength, God does. And it's through His grace and only His grace alone that you will be able to continue to endure. He possesses all you need. So we need to be strengthened by grace and stay focused on what matters. Namely, trusting in biblical truth to other believers. As he says next, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's to both be strong in grace, but also he's called to entrust the truth that he's heard in Scripture to others. See, Timothy had accompanied Paul on multiple mission trips, been with him for years. He had heard multiple teachings in various arenas. He'd seen him preach the gospel to unbelievers. He'd seen him exhort the church of Jesus Christ in, again, various cities. And these teachings are Essentially, what we now possess in the Scripture itself, in our completed Bibles. This is what Paul taught. This is what Timothy heard him teach in the presence of faithful witnesses. And this shows us that Paul's aim was not merely to inspire or to encourage the people he taught. Paul's aim when he taught was to teach To teach so that those who heard him, heard his preaching, would then go take the teaching that they had heard and impart it to others. That that teaching wouldn't just stop with the initial audience, but that audience would then go and teach other people also. Passing the information along. So like in the military, when a general gives a directive, he passes down that directive through the chain of command. To colonels, and then the colonels to majors, and the majors to lieutenants, and so on. Until all people recognize that directive. And likewise, the expectation is when we hear the word of God, it shouldn't just stop with us. We should seek to understand it to the degree that we're able to therefore go and teach other people also. And frankly, that's why we pass along the sermon review questions. And why in our community groups we choose to review the sermon. It's so that we would make sure as a church body that we have understood 
what the Word of God taught us on a Sunday afternoon so that now we can go, therefore, and teach others also, namely our families. If we're leaders of families, we should make sure our children and our spouses understand what the Word of God teaches and the implications it has on us. Our aim, therefore, is not just to be inspired on a Sunday, but it's to learn so that we too, each of us, might be able to teach others also, so they too could be strengthened by the Word of God. The word he uses in trust also indicates the value of what Timothy heard. You only entrust things of value. National secrets are entrusted to the Secretary of State. You entrust your money to a bank. Or your children you entrust to a babysitter. And so when Paul was commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he was also entrusted with that teaching. Notice what Paul says about this in Titus chapter 1, verse 3, as he introduces, just a couple pages over in your Bibles, as he introduces himself to Titus in this letter, he explains that he's been given the gospel to preach to unbelievers and believers the hope of eternal life. He mentions in verse 2, and then in verse 3 he says, which at the proper time manifested was manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul understood Christ, his commander, commanded him to be faithful with what he'd been given. It, God's word had been entrusted to him. Entrusted to him. Christ was trusting Paul with his word. And likewise, Paul had entrusted what he had learned from the word of God to Timothy. And Timothy likewise has that responsibility. And so on and so forth. Down through the ages, we have now been entrusted with God's word and the responsibility to be faithful to it. This is no mere book. It is the revelation of our Creator. And this is why reformers like William Tyndale were so committed to get the Word of God into the language of all people. Tyndale in particular, the, the English. The reformers were willing to lose everything they possessed, including their lives. For the sake of developing a faithful translation of the Word of God into English, William Tyndale himself was forced to flee England. And for 12 years he lived as a fugitive in Denmark and in Germany until eventually he was caught after 12 years and he was eventually executed. He summarized his experience as a fugitive during those 12 years in Germany and Netherlands, in a letter written to Stephen Vaughn in 1531. And in that letter, he refers to my pains, my poverty, my exile out of my own natural country, and bitter absence from my friends, my hunger, my thirst, my cold, 
the great danger wherewith I am everywhere encompassed. And finally, he speaks to innumerable other hard and sharp fightings which I must endure. Timothy, uh, Tyndale willingly took on all of those pains simply to make sure that the English people might be able to read the Word of God in their own language. He took pains to the point of death to make sure we would have this. Tyndale sacrificed his life to entrust us with the Bible. The Bible has been entrusted to us. And Chris and Josh, we need, therefore need to be faithful to treat it properly. As Timothy was exhorted by Paul. We have not just received the Word of God, we have entrusted with it. And when somebody entrusts something to you, you become its guardian, you become its protector. It's your responsibility to make sure that it remains protected and undefiled, unmolested, that it, it remains pure and unchanged. And that's why Paul likewise calls Timothy to entrust these things to other faithful men. Not just to other people, but to entrust these truths to faithful men who will be able to faithfully teach others also. That is, Timothy needs to be on the lookout for other faithful men who demonstrate their faithfulness in their life, in their teachings. They demonstrate that they recognize the incredible value of the Word of God. They recognize the incredible treasure that they have been entrusted with. And that they will therefore be faithful to protect the Bible with its truths, with their lives if necessary, against all who would rise up against it. And the third exhortation that he gives Timothy and us here is to suffer hardship. And he illustrates this suffering with three metaphors. A soldier an athlete, and a farmer. He says in verse 3, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So you'll notice that each of those illustrations is illustrating his command to suffer hardship, to share in suffering in the ESV. The Greek word is soon kakopetheson. It's a compound word of three, actually three different words. Soon, together, kako, hardship or suffering or evil, and then patheson, suffering. So it's this word that entails together, hardship, suffer. In fact, this same word, the three compound word, sun kako patheson, is used to describe Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty five through 26, when the writer says, Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He chose to be mistreated together with the people of Israel. The words also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 26, when Paul writes, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so this emphasizes the fact that when a Christian suffers, he does not suffer alone. It's not a solitary experience, even though in the midst of that suffering, it probably will feel like you're alone. Because probably nobody else knows what you're going through. And because you feel alone, you will be tempted to isolate yourself even more from other members of the body of Christ. In fact, you will probably begin to resent other Christians. And maybe even eventually Christ. You'll also be tempted to begin to rely upon your own strength rather than God. And if this happens, you will eventually be defeated. But the reality is Timothy nor we are alone in what we have to endure. In fact, Paul says, Timothy... You are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. Just like the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews 11 and 12. To be a Christian is a call to suffer. So how much more a Christian leader? Those who want to be pastors or elders in the church. The very reason Paul makes the analogy of a soldier first is to emphasize the fact that we should not expect ministry to be a pleasant experience. Only a fool would enter military service thinking it was going to be pleasant. To commit oneself to leadership of the church is to place yourself on the front lines of a very real war. And this is why Timothy must count the cost of such a commitment And not get entangled in the affairs of everyday life, it says. The word entangled actually means to get caught. It's used to actually describe an animal that gets caught in a net or a fly that gets entangled into a spider's web. The more involved they become, the more entangled they become. The word actually means to weave And it's in the passive voice. So it carries this idea of being woven into by the world. So like a needle and thread, every time the needle enters the fabric, the thread becomes more secure and it becomes great, uh, has to a greater extent, it becomes tied to that garment itself. So similarly, the amount of time and energy and devotion we engage in the world, the greater we're going to be tied into the world and entangled with it. But the faithful soldier avoids such civilian pursuits. And so what this implies is that church leaders need to avoid committing themselves to anything that is 
not related to Christ in his church, that doesn't have some sort of strategic end involved in it. We need to limit ourselves in what we involve ourselves in. Not because these things are sinful, but as it said here, they just serve to distract us from what we're called to do. They're distractions. And what motivates the soldier to resist these allurements, these entanglements, you'll see is the desire to please his commander. And that's key. What's going to keep us from getting entangled in the affairs of this life is the desire to please our commander. That's the, that's the antidote, so to speak. Our aim needs to be to please our commander Christ. Not ourselves, not other people, Christ. So to seek to please our commander means we're interested in what his expectations are, not our own expectations, and not other people's expectations. We stand before his judgment. So practically speaking, this means that Preparing an interesting sermon is insufficient. The pastor needs to make certain he is rightly handling the word of truth, as Paul writes later. Just meeting regularly with members is insufficient. The pastor must commit himself to also regularly pray for the members of the church. Appearing humble and godly is worthless unless that is actually true of the pastor's heart. We can't be content with growing our numbers in our ministries. We need to be concerned with spiritual growth primarily. Because that's what Christ is primarily concerned with. So even though that may be what other people evaluate us on, that actually may be what we evaluate ourselves on, that is not what the faithful soldier is concerned with. The faithful soldier is concerned with the desires of his commander, Christ. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what's due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What motivated Paul, in fact, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul elucidates his motivations in ministry. But what particularly motivated Paul in all of his ministry was not the applause of men. It was not, again, meeting his own standards of excellence. What motivated Paul was the knowledge that one day he would have to stand before Christ and give an account for what he had been entrusted with. And he trembled at that thought. And likewise, all of us should be motivated in our ministry with that day in mind. This ties into Paul's point that he illustrates next, that of the athlete. He says in verse 5, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
So the second way Timothy will suffer actually is by faithfully following God's standards for ministry. Again, this is an illustration of how Timothy will suffer. The faithful minister, the point is, the faithful minister will not cheat in his ministry. He's not a cheater. See, cheaters, as we all know, seek to finish the race, if running's the event. They seek to finish the race by simplifying their effort. They look for an easier course with less obstacles. And they try to think of ways to finish through easier means than everybody else has. But they don't do this openly. They do this secretly because they don't want to get caught. They crave the praise that comes from the spectators for winning, but they don't want to endure the labor and pain of running. And so they would rather cheat in order to get that praise, even if that praise is really emptiness. Because they cheated. So what are the rules Christ sets out for ministry? How is it that God expects ministry to be done? Well, I think it can really be boiled down to two things. Simplifying it. And there's always danger in simplifying it, but for the sake of this message, I would boil it down to two things. Having the right methods and the right heart. The right methods would be teaching truth versus manipulating men through worldly means. Teaching truth versus manipulation. Through worldly means. That's the right methods. If you look at some passages with me, uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. I want you to see these things illustrated in Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's saying, we're not being manipulative in our ministry. Rather, we make sure what we're teaching is the truth. The truth that God has revealed. Renouncing hidden things. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15, Timothy's exhorted to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Be ready to stand before God as one whom God would approve of. In your teaching, make sure God's approved of what you say, regardless of what other people think. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's the right methods. Teach the word of God faithfully. So that its truth is clearly communicated. The right heart is being driven out of a love for God and others and not out of selfish gain. In your ministry, don't be driven for selfish gain. That could be money. It could be praise. It could be respect. Make sure that in your ministry, you're being driven out of a love for God and a love for others. 2 Corinthians 1.12, back to 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, 
that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Chris, you're well aware of 1 Peter 5, where Peter exhorts the elders to minister not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So it is in ministry, we're not to use our authority to manipulate others, but rather to shepherd others, to care for them. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If we have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is making it explicit that in our ministry, if we're not loving other people, if love for people is not driving us, What we're doing is worthless. It's empty. At best, it's empty. At worst, it's destructive. We have to be driven by love. If we're not, we're cheating. A successful ministry is not measured by size or popular approval. It's measured by us having the same sort of confidence like Paul, such confidence that's willing to call God as a witness to the motivations of our heart and the faithfulness of our actions. Of our sincere love and commitment to others and our faithfulness to His Word. So not only will we suffer in ministry because we neglect the things of this world, Not only will we suffer because we choose to work hard laboring and not trusting in worldly methods. But we'll also suffer because we don't always see the fruit of our labors. As he says in verse 6, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now notice the emphasis here is on hardworking. Hardworking farmer the 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 illustration of the farmer illustrates that when a minister works diligently he can trust he can have confidence that he will be rewarded for his labors so picture the a communal farm that has many farmers working on it think of an ancient farm first century israel or rome on this communal farm you have various farmers and you have some that are lazy working on their portions of the field, and you have others who are diligently laboring. You have one man's portion laying fallow because he won't lift a finger or because he's distracted by other concerns. In another field, you have a farmer who has weeds sprouting up because he's content because at least it looks like it has an appearance of growth. So you didn't see... Fruit popping up immediately, so hey, there's at least there's something growing here, even if it's weeds, even if it's not what I'm trying to grow, at least I can see something, and that looks more impressive than up than nothing. 
Some growth is better than no growth. And then in another field, you have an, a faithful lar- a farmer diligently laboring. And in time, he produces rich, fat, full heads of grain. And so when the harvest comes, that farmer, because he's the one that's produced the richest harvest, he will be the one to enjoy the first fruits of the totality of the harvest. And the point there is the hardworking farmer is the one that's going to be rewarded on the last day. It's the hardworking farmer who, like an athlete, didn't cheat, but labored without being um, driven by the evidence of fruit in front of him, but just the promise that God would reward his labors. It's that farmer who will be rewarded. So again, simply put, the diligent farmer is the one who's driven not by the present, but by a promise. He's driven by a promise rather than the present. So Paul reminds Timothy that he needs to have the same thing to be true of him in his ministry. To be driven by a promise rather than what he sees in the present. Our scripture reading today was from Isaiah chapter 6. And maybe Timothy could have reflected upon Isaiah when he hears these words from Paul. Because when Isaiah was commissioned to preach God's word to Israel, his commissioning was to preach to a hardened people. In fact, that's what his commissioning was. Go and preach until these people's hearts are completely hard. Isaiah's task would have been lifelong. And it eventually ended in Isaiah's death. He was eventually killed by his own king. He was killed by King Manasseh. According to legend, he was put inside a hollow log and that log was sawn in half. That's what was Isaiah's reward for preaching what God had given him. So he probably never got the chance to see the fruit of what he had told the Israelite people. And there was probably little encouraging fruit in his lifetime. But the purpose of his words at that time, again, were to harden hearts, not to harvest them. But we all know the glories that we possess in Isaiah chapter 53, as well as the rest of the book of Isaiah. It is my favorite book of scripture. That's why my oldest son is named after Isaiah. It's also because I love the work of that prophet that he faithfully labored despite the opposition he faced to the end. That's what I hope for my own son too in his life. It's what I hope for myself and our elders as well. Isaiah's message declared your salvation and his prophecy is arguably the greatest prophecy in all of the Old Testament. And yet, He enjoyed very little of the fruit that his prophecy produced. We would do well to remember frequently the labors of Isaiah as well as other faithful men in history and recall how long it took for other Christians to produce fruit in their labors. We've already heard how difficult it's been for the layers in Poland, the farmers in Indonesia, 
the Macleans in Wales. Their ministry is not bursting at the seams despite years of labor. And that's because the reason they haven't returned home yet is because they're driven by a promise rather than the present. It was seven years before William Carey baptized his first convert in India. It was seven years before Adoniram Judson baptized his first convert in Burma. Morrison toiled seven years before the first Chinese was brought to Christ. Moffat declared that he waited seven years to see the first evident moving of the Holy Spirit among the Bekwanas in Africa. And Henry Richards also wrought seven years in the Congo before the first convert of the Holy Spirit was gained in Bonsamanteca. If these men again were motivated by their fruit, they would have given up after six months. And likewise, we can't be motivated simply by what we see. We have to be driven by the promise of fruitfulness and labor diligently, having confidence in such promise. And then Paul concludes saying, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And that's how he finishes. No further explanation is needed, Timothy. Timothy and we will learn from our own experience what Paul is saying here. We will learn the reality that we need to be strong in grace if we're going to endure and have fruitfulness in our ministry. We will learn that in order to be faithful, we need to entrust what we have been entrusted with to other faithful men. And we will learn that we will have to suffer hardship. But again, we don't suffer alone. We suffer with every other member of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray specifically now for Chris. That you would make him strong in grace. Not just today, but throughout the remainder of his life. And especially in the ministry of this church. That we would be built up not just by the evident gifts that you've given him. But in particular, we'd be built up by the grace of Christ that is in him. And that we would see that and experience that. And delight in it. As we see that he is a gift to us, to this church. Lord, I pray that we would faithfully learn to pray for one another in the difficulties of ministry. Yes, our elders, but also one another. That we would be aware that this is a labor that we're all called to, to complete the commission that you gave the church. Lord, that we would be quick to pray, we'd be quick to come alongside and to encourage rather than criticize. And to serve rather than to simply seek to be served. Lord, we want to see you bring fruit through this church. But if it, if it doesn't happen for decades, that's okay. But let that not be because we were 
faithless. Let it be because we were faithful. And we will continue to be faithful by your grace. And we'll seek to labor. And we look forward to the fruit that you will eventually accomplish. But most especially, we look forward to hearing from you. Well done, good and faithful servants at the end of our quest. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So at this time...